You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hey, Resonate. My name is Steven, and I'm so thankful to get to be standing here in front of you guys on a screen today um, and preaching to you. For years, I've been on staff in Moscow, but recently my wife and I and our team have moved to Reno, Nevada so that we can plant a church there. Uh, For those of you guys that don't know a whole lot about me, uh, I want to tell you one thing in particular that you need to know about me. If you don't know this already, I am an avid fisherman. Um, All my life, all I could think about on the weekend, after school, every chance I got was fishing. Uh, if, if you were questioning where I was, I was probably on a lake somewhere or in a river trying to catch the next biggest fish. Um, and, and I'll tell you this much too, not only am I an avid fisherman, I am also a really good fisherman. And I got no problem boasting about that because I catch some really, really big fish. Recently, I went to a, a, a river and, and decided to fish with a friend and he was trying to help me catch a sturgis for the first time. I had never caught one of these fish. If you've ever, if you've ever heard of a sturgis, they're really, really big fish. Um, you know, almost unlifelike. They're prehistoric in nature. They're huge. Um, and, and as we go fishing, I go out and the first time that I tried, I caught probably the biggest uh, large fin base you've ever seen in your entire life. It's, I'm, I'm talking like this big. And, uh, and I'll let you in a little bit on a secret. And this is the reason why I catch so many fish. Um, I, I prioritize every single time I go out to fish, I use a squiggle. Um, and a squiggle is that little piece of metal that you put at the end of a line. And I, it pretty much, it just lets you, it lets you cast way further. Um, and by casting way further, you can get, um, you, your, you can get your rod out into a, a part of the, the water where um, the fish are bigger. And, and so that was kind of the trick. We were, we were going for these sturgises and I, and I caught this, this uh, large fin base and I reeled it in, like I said, it was like, it was probably this big. Um, and so I was like eager, I was excited we were gonna catch one of these sturgises. And so I'm rigging up my pole and I, I, take, I take the squiggle and I attach a hook to it. Um, and then I, I put the hook and you have to secure it underneath a rock. And then you take the fishing pole and you throw it out into the water. And if you're lucky enough, and if you rub the right kinds of things on the pole, these sturgises, they will grab the, the pole. And then that's when, that's when you begin the, the fight of a lifetime. Um, and me and my buddy, we got on one of these fish and I was holding on to this line. I was trying to run it up the, up the bank as much as I could. Um, and finally, after hours of trying to catch this fish, it won and not me. I got pulled into the water. Uh, and I was, I mean, just really fighting for my life. And, and at one point I was, I was underneath the water for seven, eight minutes or something like that. And, uh, and I was about to give up. And then the same fish that I caught earlier, this base fish came up and because we had you know, gotten acquainted after you catch the fish, you, you nurture them a little bit, um, it actually pulled me back to shore and we were able to get both fish out of the water and it was this miraculous story. And so um, I tell you guys that today because I am just a really good fisherman and I really needed you to know that. Um, if you haven't caught on already, I just lied right to your face. Um, I, in fact, am not a very good fisherman, and I'm not really a fisherman at all. I did not grow up thinking about being a fisherman. Um, but the reason I tell you that story is, is one, I wanted to start it off light um, and let you know that, that, that I, I like to be lighthearted and I like to make jokes. Um, but, but really, 
I think that there's this reality in our world today that, that oftentimes people can claim to be something that they're really not. Okay, so many of us could, could claim to be Christians in the same way that I claim to be a fisherman. And you probably caught on early if you, if you fished a fair amount that the, the language that I was using, the vocabulary was actually incorrect. My methods were horrible and I was telling absolute lies about things that would never happen. Um, but sometimes people can play the Christian game enough and pretend to be a Christian enough and miss the whole part of what it actually means to be a Christian. And I want to say this, that, that today we, we will continue through this, this series in the book of James, and, and I'm taking on a, a passage here that is, is very dense and is, is often very difficult to wrestle with, but I think it's really important on this point of understanding what true faith actually is. And that's why I tell that story, and that's what uh, we're going to talk about today. But before I begin, I, I want to let you guys know that the heart behind this entire sermon series is for you guys to have a deeper and more full understanding of what it means to be a mature Christian. And also that you would find delight in Christ, that you would know that before the foundation of the world, God knew your name, that he knew who you were, he knew what you were gonna struggle with, he knew what course your life was going to take, he knew ultimately that you were going to sin and fall short of his glory, and that your entire life was going to be wrought with sin. And God, being rich in love towards us and with the grace that he had for us, he didn't leave us in our brokenness. He didn't leave us in our sin. And all throughout human history, as we tried to make it right, as we tried to obey God's commands um, and proved over and over again that we were unable to do so, God made a way for us. God sent his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to come live a perfect life like none of us could do, die on the cross, and be rose again. And so as we talk through these, these difficult things and as we're talking about what it means to be a mature as Christians, I want you guys to remember that the reason we're having these discussions is because we found freedom in Christ. Christ lived, died, and was resurrected on our behalf as a justification for our lives, giving us salvation. It says he adopted us into his family. He, he rebirthed us into life. And so I hope as, as we talk about these things, it is not just another addition of difficult things that you have to try to figure out how to do throughout your day, but it would be out of an overflow and an understanding of the delight that we find in Christ. Okay. So uh, there's a couple things that we need to lay down as groundwork before we can get into the text today. And, I, and I'll tell you that this text that we're getting into has been highly debated throughout, throughout Christian history. And the reason is, is because it's, it, is, it is a text in Scripture that seems like it may have a contradiction within it. And I'll get to that. We're not going to skirt around it. But I will say this, that there are many perspectives on this text and there are many opinions on this text that we will not have time to wade through exhaustively into... Um, to talk about in length today, but what I, what I hope to do is provide for you an understanding that I and your pastors believe is the truth and how, um, how this text and some other texts come together as one. And so um, the, the first thing that I want to say is this, 2 Timothy 3.16, we read the, this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And the reason that I start there is because it's important that we all know that we believe that scripture is inspired by God, 
that it, even though it was written by many human authors, it was penned by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God, which means that it's divinely inspired. So even though there's human authorings, God had his hand in it. And therefore, we believe that Scripture does not contradict itself, that the Bible does not contradict itself. And that's important for where we're going, okay? So, where I want to take us first is actually not into this passage in James, but actually into a couple different passages, all written by the Apostle Paul. And the reason that I want to do so is because the Apostle Paul was notorious for a very specific doctrine or belief. Um, and that is the, the doctrine or belief in question when we read through the passage that we're going to get to today. So if you don't, if you don't understand what I'm saying, bear with me. I want to read to you a couple passages of scripture and then explain to you what Paul's position on the matter is. And then we'll go from there. So the first is this, it is Romans 3, verse 28. We read this. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then we read again in, in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. We read these, these words. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay. And then one more scripture before I get to this point is Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. And this is the same author, Paul, writing instead of, the Ro instead of to the Romans, to the Ephesians, and he says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that, none, so that no one may boast. Okay, so Paul, in these, in these different letters to these different groups of people, he is trying to communicate the same thing. He uses... Um, the example of, of Abraham, Father Abraham, the, the one who took his son up the mountain to be slaughtered, and then God provided a way for that not to be so. He uses him as an example. But the point that he's trying to make, and I believe this is Paul's position, he's trying to tell us that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Paul is saying that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, which is a gift to us from God. It's not something of our own doing. So again, I'll say that. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And then additionally, using this example of Abraham, he's saying that Abraham's works were not a means to his justification. Abraham's works were not a means to justification. It was by God's grace only. It was by his belief, the faith that he had that saved or justified Abraham. Okay. And that's important for where we're going. And I'll get to that in a second. Um, but you have to, you have to understand clearly that that is Paul's position. Okay, and, and I believe that, your pastors believe that. Um, and so now I want to go into the text. We're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 today. So if you want to open your Bible to that page and keep it there, um, we'll keep coming back to it. But I'll read this now. Uh, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you said to, to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So it's a lot of scripture in there, um, but I hope that you're already beginning to see why I drew out the points from Paul's beliefs in there. And I want to I want to give you guys some some arguments that James might have against Paul, and and I'll say them this way: Whereas Paul said we are saved by faith alone or by grace alone through faith alone, James says potentially faith without works is dead and useless. It does not save us. Okay, so whereas Paul is is saying we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, it seems as though. James is saying, faith without works is dead and useless, seemingly contradictory. And then again, Paul uses the example of Abraham and says that Abraham's works were not a means to justification. And James is essentially saying that Abraham was justified as a result of the display of faith that he had. In other words, his works led to his justification. That Abraham was justified as a result of his works. So you might be with me and thinking to yourself, you just said the Bible doesn't contradict itself, um, but that seems like a a glaring contradiction. And the reason I wanted to state those things to you in that way is not because I believe the Bible's contradictory, but because if you were to come across this reading on your own and you read these things and come to those conclusions, it's not far off from you to think that. But I want to spend the rest of our time helping us understand how these two things are not contradictory. And then after we've done so, we can then look at what James is saying from a different lens and think about what it means for our lives, okay? So it begs the question, are James and Paul contradicting each other? And I, and I would say the short answer is no. And it's no because I already stated that, that Scripture is God-breathed, that it cannot contradict itself. But I understand that this may not be the satisfactory answer when the contradiction seems to be clear, but I have to remind you that Scripture was written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So even though it was penned by different authors, it was written by the Holy Spirit. So we can have trust that this, that this is not a contradiction. And we also must take into account the historical timeline of when these passages of Scripture were written, as well as who the different authors are and who they're writing to. For example, Paul is writing to, in these passages that I use, the people of Rome and the people of Ephesians specifically. And in James, this letter is seen is seen to be written as a general letter, written to a, a Jewish audience of Christians um, and in more of a general sense. And so I thought it would be helpful if you guys could see um, one of the historical aspects of this that is integral in understanding the intent of James's message. 
in so doing, seeing how it is not contradictory is when it was written. So I want you guys to look at this timeline with me. And I, I just drew up, it's a very simple timeline. There's not a ton of stuff on it, but I wanted to make this point clear so that you guys could see it. Um, this is just a timeline. Um, it, that little cross right there is representing um, the cross and when Jesus died. Um, and then you see the Gospels and the Book of Acts laid out on there, basically in the time that those things talk about. And the two points that I, I need to mention here is that that date right there that is, is the Jerusalem Council, Council, that was about 48 AD. And historians, a lot of historians believe that this letter, this James, this letter, was written uh, around mid-40s, mid-40s AD, um, but not before the Jerusalem Council. So we believe that James was written right before the Jerusalem Council. And the reason why that's important, and you can read about the Jerusalem Council in, in Acts 15, um, but the reason why that is important is because at that council, Paul and James were together. They met. Okay, and you might be saying, oh, what does that have to do with anything? You said these things were inspired by God. But it's important because not only had they not met yet, but Paul also had not written many of these letters that we are pulling these statements from him out of. Okay, however, just because Paul hadn't written this doesn't mean he wasn't preaching it. It doesn't mean that he wasn't still ruling that as his primary doctrine, that we are saved by grace through faith alone, okay? And that's important because James, we, we believe in this historical context, might be responding to a poorly, um, a poorly understood version of what Paul has been telling these Christians throughout the first century, okay? So um, I want to I want to go over a few points, and we might we'll circle back to that. But I want to tell you I want to give you guys some some recognition from Paul already of the dangers that he has within the doctrine that he states. So Paul recognizes in his letters to these different people that if they take this the wrong way, if they take this statement that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone the wrong way, they might not carry out the rest of their lives in accordance with it. So. I want to read to you guys Galatians 5, verses 6 and verse 13. So here's Galatians 5, 6. And this is the, the Apostle Paul um, wrote this letter to the Galatians. It says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay? This is slight, but I think it's important. Paul in here is seemingly added an addition to his statement. He's, he's made an addition to his statements. He says, but only faith working through love. That doesn't sound like faith alone in that, in that verse. Um, it, it seems to be that it is a, it's a certain type of faith. Not that it's faith and works, but it's a certain type of faith. Faith that is working through love. Okay, And then we'll look at verse 13 in the same, same chapter. It says this, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So again, we see this through love come up, okay? And it, he, he's saying through love serve one another. It's even though these people have been saved, he is telling them, do not abuse your freedom. Use it. Serve one another. Through love, serve one another. And so again, Paul seems to be adding and not in addition in, in saying that it's, it's this and that, but saying it's, it's, a, it's a way to know what is true about that other thing. So faith carries itself out in a certain way through love um, and serving one another. 
So the kind of faith that saves is the kind that is working to produce love, that is working and producing love. And I want to look at one more passage of scripture. This is in the book of Romans, the same letter that we got a lot of that theological um, understanding from and Paul's position. And it's verses, verse six, or, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that, may, so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I bring this passage of scripture up because Paul recognized in the book of Romans that this freedom that we find in Christ and knowing that it is, it is by grace alone, through faith alone that we are saved, some of us might begin to think to ourselves, we can do whatever we want. We can sin all the more and grace will just abound. And so Paul addresses that. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Absolutely not. That is preposterous. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we are truly born again and saved, how can we be actively living in sin? And so Paul is recognizing that there's an opportunity here that Christians who are hearing his letters, hearing his preaching, um, could misunderstand what he's saying and take it way too far. And I think that this is what James is really writing about. He's not writing in a, in a means to contradict Paul's doctrine. Instead, he is writing to correct what these believers are doing with Paul's doctrine. So as, as Paul writes to these believers in Rome, he aims to provide them with a proper understanding of their source of salvation. To the Jews, he is communicating that their knowledge of God, their self-righteousness is not their source of salvation. And to the Jews and Gentiles alike, that salvation is not achievable through right action. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. He, he talks about being, um, or James talks about being doers and not just hearers of the word in the previous passage. And I believe that he is giving these Christians the, the due rebuke that they have, because they have been living in this unrighteous and incorrect view of Paul's doctrine. These believers have taken it too far. And because they've taken it too far, James needs to write this letter that is telling them, no, you can't just say that you believe, say that you have faith and go on being sinful, unrighteous, unworthy people. There has got to be a change within you. And so I want to give you guys maybe a better picture of what James's statements actually are show you that, that Paul's position and James's position are actually not that far off from one another. So here they are. Again, Paul's position is this, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And I believe that James, writing in this letter, his, his position is this, that faith that does not produce works is no faith at all. Do you see how that's an addition to what Paul's saying and it's not actually something that's taking away from it? He's saying that faith does not, that does not produce works is no faith at all. You must do something as a Christian. It's imperative if you have become a new person, okay? And then using the example of Abraham, Paul is saying Abraham's works were not a means to justification. And James is saying that Abraham's acts of obedience to God showed the sincerity of his faith. It showed that he had true saving faith, okay? And so what I want to offer you guys is a combination of what Paul and James are saying together, because I believe that this reigns true throughout scripture. Um, and, and it was not the intent of James to contradict Paul. So here it is. Paul and James are striking two notes of the same chord. Paul is saying that we receive salvation by faith alone 
And James is saying that true faith does not remain alone, but works in love. I'll say that again. Paul is saying that we receive salvation by faith alone. And James is saying that true faith does not remain alone, but works in love. So when we receive faith, we are not whisked away immediately to heaven, but instead we are born again to grow and mature in our righteousness, that God would be displayed in us and through us to those around us. So if you, if you haven't, if I lost you or you haven't been tracking with me, I want to provide for you an illustration. And this illustration comes from Charles Spurgeon. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it to you specifically, but I'm going to tell you this illustration and, and give the credit to him. So uh, I want you to picture with me a tree that gets planted into the, into the ground and ask the question, what gives a tree life? See, the thing that gives a tree life is, is its roots. Its roots are where it, it absorbs nutrients and that's what helps the tree grow. Um, the, and the, the tree should grow up, but if you look upon the tree in spring and you don't see that it's budding or beginning to grow leaves, you might begin to question whether or not that tree is alive. And after many seasons, if this tree fails to grow leaves or, or produce fruit as it should, you would probably think to yourself, that is a dead tree. And you would be right. It is a dead tree. And it's not because the leaves and the fruit give it life, but they vindicate, they give confirmation that that tree is alive. So I believe that this is the same with us. And I believe that it is the point that James is trying to make. That if we truly have faith, just like a tree that is, is rooted and receiving nutrients, fruit will manifest in our lives. We will grow fruit. And that fruit manifests itself in works and in, in what God is doing through us and around us. It is not the works and the fruit that give us life. They are just the proof that there is life in us. I'll say that again. It is not the works and the fruit that give us life. They are the proof that there is life in us. And I think this, this illustration is really sweet for another reason. And, and that reason is that it, it connects really well to a, a passage of scripture in John 15, where Jesus is, is saying that he is the true vine and you and I, all of us are like branches. And if we're not connected to Jesus, just like if there's, if the, if roots of a tree are not in the ground or as a branch is not connected to a vine, ultimately we cannot survive. We cannot receive what we need. We will wither and we will die and we'll be thrown into the fire. And so I think Jesus and his words in John 15 would also affirm what we're saying on this and what James is really saying. Okay. So I'll say that one more time. It is not the works and the fruit that give us life. They are just the proof that there is life in us. And so now that we have cleared that up and we've, we've laid out these, con these seeming contradictions and shown the way that they are, they're actually not a contradiction um, and not done so just by, by, you know, sweeping over it, but by getting into specifics, I want to look back at these passages of scripture that we read in James and, and ask the question, what does it mean for us? Um, what is James trying to communicate to us? And so I want to reread to you guys verses 14 through 17. And they say this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. So if we profess Christ 
but we neglect our brothers and sisters in need, I believe James is saying there is no faith in us. If someone comes to you and they knock on your door and they are, they are, are in just their underwear and they're clearly disheveled and starving and you just say to them, have a good one. Uh, be blessed, brother or sister. Um, and maybe even if you, you just say, I'm praying for you. That is preposterous. And you know that. But oftentimes we're living in such a way where there is no outward action of our faith that we claim to have within us. Um, Jesus makes this really clear in, in Matthew 25 um, when he is, he's talking about the end times at the end of this passage. And he says that he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And he says, uh, whatever you did for the last of these, you did to me. Um, I, I think that he's communicating the same thing, that if we, if we neglect those in need around us, it is as if we are neglecting the Father. And that is not true faith. So next I want to carry on to these next verses, verses 18, 18 and 19 say this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And I'll say this, if, if we care more about proving to others that we know a lot about God, but fail to love our neighbors, there, there, may no, there may be no faith in us. He's saying, you say that God is one, you do well. You have good doctrine, you do well. Right on you. You're saying things that are true. But even the, even the demons believe and they shudder. If you don't believe me on this, I, I would ask you to consider those words, go back through it and look... Look at this upon, look at this yourself. But I want to tell you that, that, that demons and the devil, they have better theology than you do. They have better theology than me. They have better theology than your pastor. Um, and they are not saved. Our Christian life is not just about knowing things about God. It is great that we know things about God. It is great that we get into theology and, and learn about apologetics. But if they aren't doing anything for our life, lives, and, and they aren't working themselves out in the way that we're loving others, there is likely no faith in us. So I want to carry on into these next, these next verses, verses 20 through 26, say this, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You say that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I believe James is saying in here that our obedience to God as a result of our overflowing grace that we have received is evidence of saving faith, just as it was for Abraham. So again, I'll say our obedience to God is evidence of saving faith. Okay, so now I want to go into, I want to give you guys some questions that you can ask yourself. If you're sitting here and thinking, 
how sincere is my faith? Uh, am I really, have I really received this faith? Um, here, here's some questions you, you should ask yourself. Question number one, does my faith affect my private life? Does my faith affect my private life? Are you on your knees asking God to save your friends and family? Or do you just use Jesus as an admission into a comfortable social circle? Do you actually care about what you believe? Or is it your excuse to be around people you like? A faith that works is a faith that radically impacts every aspect of your life, not just what others see. Ask yourself that question and know that a faith that works is a faith that radically impacts every aspect of your life. Question number two, do I hate sin? Do I hate sin? Are you repenting of the sinful nature within you, whether or not people are seeing it? Or do you just care about your image? Because you see, a faith that works will put you at odds with worldliness and sin. It would be like water and oil. If you've ever tried to mix the two, they do not mix well. They stay separated. And that's how sin should be in our lives. A faith that works will put you at odds with worldliness and sin. We should hate the sin that's within us. I know that none of us are perfect and that we will, we will likely not be perfect on this side of eternity. But God is renewing us. He's offering through the Holy Spirit empower, empowerment in our lives an opportunity to live righteously, even though we were born into this unrighteous nature. And that's, that's the way it should be for us. So ask yourself that question. Do you hate sin? And question number three, does my life reflect the change that I profess? Do you actually care that God receives glory in your life? Or are you more concerned with security and comfort than you, than you are about the lost being reached and God being glorified? Do you say that you're a Christian but fail to do anything throughout your day that reflects the love of God? Are you actively seeking to make disciples or are you ignoring the things God has commanded you to do? Does your life reflect the change that you profess? See, a faith that works will lead you to obey all that God has commanded you to do. And again, you, you won't do so perfectly, but God has provided you a helper. So does your life reflect that? And you see, no one around you has been given the job of determining whether or not you profess or whether or not you possess sincere faith. But in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read that we must all appear before God or before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So on that day, on judgment day, there will be no hiding from the truth. And I desperately want each and every one of you guys to be confident that you are found in Christ and that you will not be one of the many, Jesus says the many, that he says to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I know I, I turned it up a notch there, um, but I, I think this is serious. I think that James is calling us to action. He's calling us to do something with our faith. And, and so I wanna remind you guys, um, if, if you're thinking to yourself, well, dang, this wasn't fun at all to listen to. I want to remind you guys that there is good news found in this. That despite how you answered any of those questions or how you answer those questions to yourself, 
Repentance and grace is offered to you. And we really, really do believe that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that you are saved and that Jesus provides that for you. And so if you're, if you're listening and you're, you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't, I don't know if I'm saved. And you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you're even on staff in our church and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm saved. The invitation is simple. Repent and believe. Jesus himself said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, or Paul said that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a free gift that it's extended to you. And God is not keeping tally of, of when you did so. He just wants you to do so. So I would, I would encourage you to do that, to receive the grace that he has offered you. And I, I want to leave you guys with some examples of what works look like that show sincere faith. And, and here are some of those. Uh, the first one is this, daily repentance. Um, if, if we have received sincere faith, true faith, um, we need to repent often because we are constantly coming to crossroads in which we realize that our lives do not look like Jesus's. And so would you surround yourself with people and repent to them, repent to God first and foremost for the sin that is within you? That is a display of sincere faith. Second, um, examples of works that show sincere faith is abiding in Jesus, recognizing that if we do not remain tethered to the vine, we will wither up. So that even if we are going about our day and our whole schedule is filled with Christian jargon and everything that we do has a church label on it, uh, we still may not be tethered to Jesus, abiding in Him. So you should get alone with God. You should pray often. Pray without ceasing. Get into your Bible. Read it every single day. The third one, preaching the gospel to the lost is an example of works that show sincere faith. If you know that this faith was a gift to you and that you had no right to receive it, why would you not share that with somebody else? Why would you not share that with your family, with your friends, with anybody you have the opportunity to, right? So an example of, of, of a good work that shows sincere faith would be preaching the gospel to the lost. Uh, the fourth one, discipleship. We read in the Great Commission, and, and you've heard it a million times from our church, that Jesus himself said, go and make disciples of all nations. So are you, are you actively pursuing discipleship? Are you heeding all of the things that God has commanded us to do? Are you living in such that way? Because that is an example of a work that shows sincere faith. Number five is, is sacrificial living. Are you beginning to see that the, the treasures you have on this earth are all going to pass away and that you can leverage everything that you have for the sake of God's glory around you? Sacrificial living is an example of sincere faith. And then the last one that I'll mention is this, and, and there's many more you can think of, um, but serving those in need. And James talks about this specifically throughout his entire book. He keeps bringing back to this, this example of the poor and the, those in need not being taken care of among the church. And, and I think that's, that's obviously got to do with something that was going on in these people that he's writing this letter to. The Christians of that day were not caring for those in need. And, and, and it's the same with us today. We need to be serving those in need. Jesus prioritized it and so should we. And James is asking us to do so. And so I, I want to conclude by saying this. I want you guys to be confident that faith really does work. 
it works in the sense that it, it is enough. It's enough to save you. It's enough to, to, to be joyful, to rejoice about, because there is nothing else added to it. That is the very thing that saves us. But, I, but also, if there is no evidence of fruit through loving works in your life, then it is reasonable for you to think, or for those around you to think, are you saved? Have you received this faith that we're talking about? Do you possess it? And, and as a Christian, we work to display God's love around us, and we rejoice that the faith we've received was a gift to us, so that God receives all the glory in everything that we do, and we are becoming mature throughout the process. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this scripture. Thank you for the difficulties that it arises, that it, it asks us to question whether or not the faith that we, we profess is actually in us. God, I pray and ask that away from this, you would give us a clear understanding of the difficulty of this passage and how it actually comes together with what we read in the rest of scripture. And I also ask that whoever is listening to my voice right now, whether they have been in ministry a long time or they're a, they've professed faith for just a short time now or do not know Jesus at all, uh, would they repent and believe if they are recognizing that the, the true faith is not within them? And God, would you help us all be obedient to the things that you have called us to, to your commandments, to your great commission, to this task of loving others and trying to emulate Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, may you be the glory. May you get the glory because you deserve it. We cannot boast in what we've received, but we can live it out towards other people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.